Hey, welcome to Two Sorry Excuses, episode 12. Uh, this is Sanders, Sands Live. Uh, we couldn't get together this week uh, because I had a little surgery and I'm still on the mend. But rather than skip a week, we took some clips from uh, past episodes, kind of help uh, old listeners catch up, new listeners get their bearings, and generally just give me another week uh, to rest my dulcet tones and get back yapping about Syracuse-centric events. So uh, thanks for downloading. Sit back, relax, and listen to the shenanigans of Two Sorry Excuses. This is a test for the next 60 seconds. The station will conduct a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. Sorry, that's the most Jersey thing you've told me. <laughs> Turn up the phone four. We got UFC coming on. <laughs> This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. And the good thing about that is I instantly know who the assholes are. That's where I ran in the Dolph Shays at the game. <laughs> the biggest thing I regret is not getting his picture. My brother and I are walking through the concourse at halftime of the All-Star game. My brother's like, look at this guy. He looks like one of the original NBA guys. And I look up and I'm like, that's Dolce's. And I went up and approached him. And I'm like, hey, Dolce's, how you doing? He's like, all right. He's like, Matt Livicary. I lived at 1106 Madison Street. He's like, oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember. He's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> Like you said, I didn't belong at the All-Star game. <laughs> I, had to, I had to defend myself. If this had been an actual emergency, you would have been instructed where to tune in your area for news and official information. This concludes this test of the emergency broadcast system. I'm Sanders, and he's Liv, and we are Two Sorry Excuses. Liveroo! What's up, Sam, man? What we'll do is, I'm hoping, each week, and I think, you know, like you said, Thursday, I think, is a good night. Um, Yeah, I looked at the schedule. No Thursday games at all this year. It just seems like... You know, Thursday is the perfect like kind of midway point. Looking forward to the weekend and looking back on what happened. And what used to be a you know an early start to the weekend doesn't even figure into my plans anymore. So it's a perfect night to um, chat with you and, and catch up and see what's up. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about um, the game that passed. We'll talk a little bit about what's coming up um, and just you know basically wax poetic about uh about Syracuse. How far do you trace back uh your Cuse roots or Big East roots? Well, I'll say this much I I never would have imagined being a student there years later, but when that 87 Final Four 
you know, it was played in New Orleans. So, of course, we're watching it, you know, and I don't really remember too many Final Fours before that. You know, I remember Louisville winning the year before, but I remember I was like, I was like, oh, well, I'm rooting for Syracuse. I don't know why, but I remember I used to watch those games, you know, the the games from, you know, on the, on the Saturday afternoon, you know. Yep. When they were like the only, you know, those were the only games that were shown regularly. And I don't know, I basically start following them from then on. Not as hardcore as I was leading up to the two years or so before I entered Syracuse, you know? Yeah. But I definitely was familiar with Ronnie Sykley and Derek Coleman and Billy Owens and, you know, Adrian Autry and whatnot down the line. See, my first, uh, my first re- uh, remembrance of watching college basketball was um, the Georgetown-North Carolina final. I guess that uh, Patrick oh, okay. Ewing's freshman year. That makes um, sense since you're two years older than me. Yeah, so you know, I'm probably eight at that point and you know, able to kind of stay up late, watch yep. the game, know what's going on. And then from that point on, it was, you know, it was four years of Patrick Ewing in Georgetown and, you know, you kind of get indoctrinated and you start to follow. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a Syracuse fan, uh, you know, until I decided to go there, but my brother Josh was always a a huge Syracuse fan. So, you know, he decided to go to Eastern Kentucky, uh, (laughs) Morehead State State on a cheerleading scholarship. Yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, even though even though my attention was was elsewhere, it was still directed at the Big East, you know, and I didn't yeah. I didn't identify with any one particular team, um, you know, or, or have a lot of fanfare, but I just watched it, you know, it was there, it was yeah. on, it was it was no, I, you know, I think it was I'm there. The same boat as you. But the first game I the first final I actually really remember was that Villanova Georgetown game in eighty five. Yep. You know, and it's like you knew it was a big deal. You know, I mean, and and from then on, I knew I was getting into college basketball, and that was the that was the stuff you watched. I mean, LSU was all right, so we watched those games when they would show them. But I remember going to the dome to see LSU play Georgetown. You know, it was like Georgetown was a brand. Yeah. You know, so you were watching it. You know. And I mean, I would love to see that. You know, obviously stay together and and, and be viable. But like you said, football. Rules of roost, and that's just kind of the reality. So, um, I mean, if we weren't a football school, but I wouldn't want to see us drop football. Yeah, regardless of how mediocre we may be. So you kind of just kind of play the cards you dealt, and listen. Yeah. There's worse places to be than than the ACC. I'm in rough shape today. Yeah, what happened? I um, I took uh, Val. You know the big white one. Yes. Took him to the dog park, and uh, he got into a little scrap with another dog. And he's a big boy. He's like, I don't know, 75 pounds. He's, a, he's part. Yeah, it's a big dog. He's part lab, part boxer. And he's a real sweet dog. Um, I think we had him while you were. While you were here, and yeah, I, I believe he was there. He's no problem. Like he's a real sweetheart. Uh, but for some reason, uh, he just got it in his mind today that he was going to mix it up at the dog park, and he took off as soon as we got in the gate. Uh, and he made a beeline for a, I don't know, a, probably a hundred pound husky shepherd mix wolf <laughs> beast dog, and. 
he made no bones about it, and he just went after this guy. And nobody was doing anything. So, of course, it's my dog who's the aggressor. So I had to jump in and try to yeah. separate him. But he just had a hold of him, and he wouldn't let go. And luckily, it was like on the jowls. So it Where wasn't was doing... The, uh, the owner of the other dog. He, he was there, and, and he was just trying to... You know, kind of just circling to see, you know, where he could get in. But, you know, rightfully so, one, his dog wasn't doing anything wrong. And two, it was just like a massive, it was just mass chaos. And uh, I finally kind of catch up and get in the middle and start to try to wrestle Val away. But there's no, there's no having it. This is like a 175-pound mass of dog at this point because they're joined at the jaws yeah so i kind of grab them around the waist and i'm trying to figure out what to do and i kind of go to lift his snout up so he'll release the other dog but it's he's just got a death grip on this dog and i remembered i heard somewhere that if you stick your finger in a dog's asshole (laughs) His natural reflex is to release his jaw. <laughs> so while I'm processing all what's going on, I decide to make the move. And with my left hand, um, I'm clenching his, his jaw, trying to pry it open. But I have my right hand around his belly. So it's almost like a, like a half Nelson type of half guard lock I've got him in. And I start to slide my hand back down towards his hip. And I feel myself reach around and I grab his tail and I move it away and I start to search for his asshole with my index finger. (laughs) And I don't know at what point I decided that I couldn't do that to my dog, but I had the presence of mind to say, no, there's got to be a different way. I've got to be able to take control of this situation. So I, I, I remove my hand from his asshole and I grab him around the neck and I try to pry him away and I'm kind of hitting him on the side of the head to get him uh, to, to pry him loose. But at some point during the fracas, I got um, I got a jaw full of dog or a handful of dog jaw. So I'm bleeding everywhere and they're two white dogs and they're covered in blood and people are screaming and yelling at me. You've got to get that dog out of here. You you have to leave now, and I'm like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> Everybody's a uh, everybody is a is a critic when it's yeah. not their dog and it's not their blood being shed. So, um, so that's my day. That recaps yeah, so my week. I never made it up his butt. No, I never did. I couldn't do it, well, man. Now you'll never know whether that actually works or whether or not he'd like it. Yeah, we're back. Would you have dealing uh, with family issues? My niece is at a soccer game, and my mother was supposed to go pick her up, and then she's just calling. I guess because she can't get in touch with my mother to tell me that someone else is bringing her home, and you can just imagine the type of hijinks that will ensue if my mother has to go all the way out there to pick her up and not realize <laughs> she's not there. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't want to be in her shoes, your niece or your mother's. 
Yes. So, you know, they'll be calling in, the, you know, the police, the FBI. Uh, years ago, you know, hell, this probably was five or six years ago when my sister and her were out one night. She was riding a bicycle and my sister, her mother, was walking along and she rode the bicycle up ahead a little too far. My sister didn't see her because she rode off like a few blocks down or around the corner or something. They start freaking out, you know, they called, she called the father-in-law, who's actually a police officer, a parole officer, but basically a police officer. They were, he flew down here and it was, my niece had no clue that she had caused all that type of uh, major pursuit. So where did she end up? Where'd she go? She, she just rode ahead because she was on a bicycle and my, her mother was walking. She didn't think anything of it. She's like on a bicycle, and she just rode off. <laughs> How old is she? She's a high school student? Well, now she is, but this was probably when she was like in, she was probably like in fifth grade or something, you know, and it was nighttime. So, I mean, it was probably like 9, 9.30 or something. I know I was in law school at the time, and they called me up and freaking out, and I'm like, I don't even know what the hell I can do from where I was. You know? <laughs> I mean, the least. And then, like twenty minutes later, it was like, forget about it. She's been found. It lasted twenty minutes. Yeah, because she was right around the corner, basically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're like getting the people out there with the sticks, poking them as they comb the fields, looking for a corpse and stuff. Meanwhile, she's like two blocks away on her bicycle. Bloodhounds are how they brought the bloodhounds yeah. out. <laughs> And I imagine every law enforcement uh, agent um, in, in New Orleans um, has the the hip holster that drags real low, <laughs> and they've they've got their top two buttons unbuttoned, and they haven't shaved in a few days, and they're they're combing the the bayou. That's what that's what we picture up here in, in Jersey. <laughs> yes, that's what it is constantly. It's- <laughs> It's the most egregious stereotype you've seen in every movie, like the Big Easy, um, Tightrope, the Clint Eastwood classic, uh, the guys on Treme, anything. It's just the the, the worst stereotype of a southern uh, police officer in New Orleans. You know, they all have thick accents and they're constantly eating gumbo. You know, they're constantly being pulled away from their bowl of gumbo to go investigate a crime that they don't really want to fool. With. And they they always they're dragging the bayou. They just they yes. just constantly drag. They're always just sweating. They got the two buttons down, like you said, you know, and the beads of perspiration all over. It's just one miserable existence. <laughs> and they're in their little flat boats in the bayou looking for the corpses. That's what's going on. Not everybody gets a car. They they just get those flat bottom fan boats, right? Yeah, exactly. Like Frogger. <laughs> A few favorites shouted out um, my birthday. Uh, Matt Soap put together a, a top ten list, um, which he ended up posting on Facebook for for a bunch of folks to to see. So um, I got a good chuckle out of that. And uh, two sorry excuses. Um, stalwart Liz Stillman sent yeah. me a little birthday love, uh, and uh, Colleen Kilkelly of the of the infamous. 
Roxbury Kilkellys. Um, I don't, you know, um, do you know um, Pat Kilkelly? Yeah, I worked with Pat Kilkelly at Fagan's. Did you know Colleen? He and Colleen are cousins. Um, she was. I mean, I I knew of her legend. Yeah, that's exactly what it is—an absolute legend. Not only was she one of the best-looking uh, people that um, that I knew in college, she was also one of the sweetest and the absolute coolest. Um, and you know, because we worked together, she was a cocktail waitress. And I don't even know does Fagans have cocktail waitresses anymore. Uh, I couldn't tell you. They had them when I was there. Yeah, and I, it seems. You know, at the time it seemed so normal, but in, in looking back, you know, as a as a forty year old man approaching middle age, the thought of a cocktail waitress in a college bar seemed so bourgeois. You know, yeah, there's not too many uh, college bars full of cocktail waitresses running around serving you off a tray. Like they'd even have them do the flip night, which I found weird. Yeah, and you know they must have made pretty good money because you know there were enough of them. Uh, that they kept, you know, they kept them on, and and you know they they must have done pretty good business with them. But um, Colleen was a cocktail waitress for for a long time, and she was super cool, and she was just a real sweetheart. Um, so much so to the point where um, she invited me to um, to participate in. Uh, I don't know, Alpha Phi had a date auction or. Uh, something along those lines where they, they auctioned off uh, eligible SU bachelors. Yeah. And they held it right there on, on Walnut Park. And, you know, it was a big sorority uh, fraternity function. But, you know, for some reason she had invited me. And um, but I had enough friends and, and um, you know, acquaintances in that in that circle it you know it made sense at that point um you know i think i was doing the top 10 list and djing at fagan so uh, if anything it was a bit of a a loose connection but a connection nonetheless and um so i was so excited to to be in the date auction that brian peters and i hauled ass all the way from alexandria bay where we were djing a gamma phi beta formal uh, and like they would give okay. us a room, and so he and when I was got this formal that y'all were DJing. What, what was that? When was this? I was probably Marchish, like a spring formal, maybe our senior year. All right, because it that kind of goes into a story I was thinking about. But go on. So so we end up getting wasted with it, it must have been the gamma phi beta formal. Um, they put us up in a room, and Brian and I had a hot tub, and and. You know, we just really kicked it up on their dime, and we hauled ass in the Crown Vic all the way back from Alexandria Bay just in time to to make my uh, time slot. And um, I got up there, and maybe I did a top ten list, and you know, jumped through some hoops, and you know, did some kind of trained monkey kind of thing for my talent. And yeah, um, I ended up getting bid on and won. By Colleen Kilkelly. Oh, nice. And I was like, that's it. I, I've done it. I've reached prime time. This is mm-hmm. it. This is my coming out party, man. Colleen Kilkelly had paid to go on a date with me. <laughs> so I go home and I'm, I'm pretty psyched. And, um, you know, the guys are kind of sitting around on a Saturday morning. And I go, guys, you'll never believe what happened. And I go through the whole story and I... You know, I trumpet the fact that Colleen Kilkelly purchased my services. And, you know, everybody gets a good chuckle out of it. And Cuddy, 
without missing a beat, goes, uh, you know she was a ringer. And I was like, well, <laughs> what are you talking about? He's like, yeah. Uh, they give the seniors uh, fake money to bid on people who um, – you know who they don't think is are going to get bid on, uh, <laughs> and they don't want to embarrass anybody. So you know they make sure that they, you know, bid some nominal fee uh, to make sure it looks like it's all legit. Um, yeah, you you um, you were a charity case. She she just bid on you because you know no one else would, and that was it, man. One felt swoop, he popped my balloon. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the um, talk about the football game. Yeah, uh, the football game, uh, I I will be honest with you, the only, the major part of the football game I saw was about the last three minutes, because it wasn't carried on TV, and I was watching other stuff, you know, because there was so much football going on that day, and my only other option was to watch it on my phone, but fortunately I did tune in uh, when we got the... I tuned in when we got the ball back down by, I think we were down by a point at the time, and then Terrell Hunt threw the interception. You know, it looked like, you know, like our fate was sealed, but then they they come up big and hold hold BC to a field goal and then get the ball back, and they engineered an amazing, an amazing drive in less than two minutes with that great touchdown play there. Uh, who is it? To Josh Paris, I think. Yep. Tight end. Yep. Uh, which, if he doesn't get in the end zone, the game's over and we lose. Yeah, because we had no more timeouts and and we threw the ball like right, you know, not far outside the hashes. That was an amazing finish. Yeah, I am glad to hear that you did not watch the game live because um, I was in the Poconos and they were carrying the game live. Uh, because it, that's, you know, Poconos are, are probably an hour and a half, uh, less than two hours outside of Syracuse. So it's the, you know, it's a greater central New York market. Um, but I was watching the Alabama-Auburn game. I had no yeah. rooting interest for that game, but it was just so compelling that I couldn't, I, I couldn't, uh, you know, turn away from it. So yeah. I took solace in the fact that it was going to be a, um, a watch ESPN app game. So I, I planned on watching the, the replay. And, um, you know, so I sat down and I, you know, watched the game while doing a couple other things today. And uh, we absolutely outplayed them for the first half of football. Well, I was fo- I was trying to follow along on Twitter and, all, and on the computer. And I saw that we... Had- we got the ball in the red zone like three or four times and only scored like once early on in the game. Is this not correct? No, that that is that's it's correct. We ended up um, we ended up stalling in the red zone a couple times uh, in the first quarter. And missed um, a field goal. Missed a field goal. Um, the defense was was outstanding. Um, we had not allowed a a one hundred yard rusher in the dome at all during the season um you know they they ended up putting up you know almost 200 yards on us on the ground but a lot of that were were was were, were fluky QB scrambles and, yeah, yeah. and broken plays but for the first half we just absolutely dominated them and really 
the the score was not indicative of uh, of the quality of play. It ended up being twenty one to to fourteen uh, at halftime. Yeah, I saw he gave that touchdown at the end of the first half when you think you were going to go in the locker room with a twenty one to seven lead. Yeah, the 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 BC quarterback Reddig. Um, yeah. Either looked like Flutie, or we made him look like Flutie, um, because he was just making things happen. Um, you know, he had 85 yards rushing. He had a rushing TD. He was throwing balls off his back foot across the field. You know, lame ducks with broken coverage. Um, you know, he was just he was just making things happen that shouldn't have, shouldn't have happened. Um, and they scored late. In the second, but late in the second quarter, we were up twenty-one to seven, um, and they got the ball back to start the second half. Uh, it drove down the field, so you know, twenty-one twenty-one early in the third quarter was definitely not how we played that game. You know, at least yeah, how like we, we should have been ahead half. by more based on how we were playing compared to them. And, and even with our miscues and, and you know um, inefficiencies on offense, we still looked really good. You know, defense has kept us in a lot of games, and you know this was the 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 level of play was where it should be for you know for the opponent we were playing. You know, you're gonna lose to FSU every time. You're gonna lose to Clemson. You're gonna get killed. But like, you know, against the BCs and against the Pits, you know, you do exactly what you're supposed to do and you've got a 50-50 shot of winning and that's really kind of what it came down to and that's what you know that's what our season looked like seems like we were just here yeah seconds ago yeah what were you doing man during your break (laughs) (laughs) would you go down and make a sandwich real quick real quick real quick Uh, but we're back for uh, episode six two sorry excuses part two of our bowl recap special, Boogaloo. Uh, Maui Invitational summary, and yeah. Mark Selden extravaganza. Yes, yeah, not to mention the the sad stripping Indiana fangirl. <laughs> All right, we got a ton. I, I don't even. I almost don't know where to start with this. Let's let let's go chronologically. Let's talk a little bit about the Maui Invitational. Yes, since I barely even remember that now. It, it seems so long ago, but what a what a It was over a week ago now. Uh just a dominating effort. Not only by the team as a whole, but but CJ Fair in particular. Yeah. <laughs> CJ Fair, Jeremy Grant, he scored 19 point. He he matched his career high than from the night before 19 points against Baylor. Uh, Tyler Ennis, I think, you know, he grew a huge pair of testicles in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) That guy became a man last week. Yeah, that happened to me when I went to Hawaii, but it was, um, it was a spider bite. Uh, We just, we cured it up with antibiotics. It really didn't happen to be that big of a deal, but, um... Didn't give you any more courage or guile. No, I couldn't hit a three-pointer or drive yeah. the lane, but my testicles were huge. What I did like about that game was, you know, because one thing that Jim Behar's been doing his whole career, which bothers the hell out of me, is when he starts taking the air out of the ball around four minutes in the game. You know, when he's got a lead. Yeah. And then 
what what I hate about it is we slow down, we quit doing what we're doing, and then we never get good shots off, you know? Yep. And we end up making games closer than they should be. Well, <clears throat> he consciously didn't do that against Baylor because, I mean, you saw how Baylor played. They could, they're the type of team, if you need to score points quick, they can do it. Right. You know, and he, he was like, he knew the only way that we were going to be able to beat them, we weren't going to be able to do that BS because they can score pretty quick. Uh, so he's like, kept running the offense because he knew we were going to have to outscore him. You know, and, and thank God for that because I, I can't stand that slowdown stuff and I don't understand why they do it as often as they do it, you know? It's it just got to be something ingrained in coaches in terms of wanting to protect, you know, a lead, protect the basketball. It's... You know, it's akin to the prevent defense. Yeah, which only prevents you from winning, right? <laughs> uh, but C.J. Fair had a monster tournament. Um, yeah, he was the MVP. The Baylor game was indicative of, of you know, his effort out there. Um, you know, the announcers, uh, both in the Baylor game and uh, in the Indiana game, um, made note of, of the, you know, of the soft rims. Yeah, um, and you know, warn fans not to, uh, you know, not to to draw too many um, conclusions in terms of of you know ability and and um, and aptitude. But CJ Fair was he was on fire out there. Yeah, I think he had twenty four points in the in the final. Yeah, he was ten for seventeen from the field. Um, you know, I think he played forty minutes against. Um, uh, against Minnesota, he had 38 minutes against Baylor. Yeah. Um, you know he's just a workhorse, and, and, and he looked badass doing it with that uh, <laughs> with gouge. that scar on his face. That's unbelievable, and and you know we talked about it last time. He just, you know, he literally turned cheek and walked down the court, and you know, yeah. But for a band aid, and and later on in the game, uh, he ended up opening it up a little bit. You would have never known. Um, you know that he had a you know eight to whatever eight to twelve stitches depending on the on the source. You read, yeah. But um, no, but know, he's the man. You know, he just when we need a shot, just give the ball to CJ. You know, like and, when the offense is dragging down, we haven't had a bucket in a few few possessions. Give it to give it to CJ. He'll get us off the schneid. You know, he's just he's dependable. You know, he's clutch. And, yep. and, and he's he's the leader of that team, and and he's not an outspoken guy. His personality is not, um, you know, in line with some of uh, of Syracuse stars of past. But um, you know, he gets the job done, and he's 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 quality. I read an article uh, recently that listed him as one of the top five um, most overrated. Orange men, and Man, that's I, a hard list to get I, into. I I couldn't disagree more. I mean, he was only here for a year, and, and basically, um, it was, you know, saying about how highly touted he was. You know, he came, he redshirted. You know, he ended up, um, you know, having high expectations and and just never delivered. Who, but who put out that list? I uh, mean, as far as being with Syracuse, he was. He was he 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 played better than he was expected to be, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, as far as the NBA goes, 
of course. But, you know, most Syracuse players flop in the NBA. <laughs> uh, Mike Mueller um, from, let me see. Tell me where he is. I'll go kick his ass. He's he, he's on Bleacher Report, but he's got it. He's got to be from somewhere else because he's a he's a contributor. Um, number nine was Donovan McNabb, which right away kind of shoots his credibility to shit. Because if you were tabbing Donovan McNabb as a potential contributor to the series, Sarah- last name M U E L L E R M U E L L E R. All right, let me look if I can find him up. Let's see where this bastard is from. Uh, he is a graduate of Syracuse University in 2004. Oh, he's just a self-loathing orangeman. Uh, what else does he do? Oh, his favorite athlete is Isaiah Thomas. Oh, uh, he he's complete, He completely has no credibility. He's probably a big Knicks fan or something. Uh, it says Maradona is better than Pele. Wait, he's from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Yeah, but he graduated from Cuse in 04. No, I know. I'm saying, how can somebody from Scranton be such a hater? Oh, yeah, right. Exactly. The most memorable game he attended. He ran cross-country and track for the Cuse before getting sidelined with an injury and got my first job in TV in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Hmm. He has... he spells Virginia wrong on his Bleacher Report about page. He has it spelt Virginia. <laughs> I don't know if that's intentional for the joke or just a, an oversight. <laughs> and then his contribution is even uh, is even shakier. Um, while he does have some some legitimate um, legitimate calls on here, uh, he's got Wes Johnson at number six. Which I think is totally unfair. I, I gotta um, find this article. What what is he saying about him? These are um Is he saying that as a Cuse as a Syracuse player he's overrated? Or as a post Syracuse player? No, 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 no. As a uh the nine most disappointing overrated players since nineteen ninety. Okay. He I'm benefit- trying to find the article. Here I'll let me page well, I'm on his Bleacher Report looking at his full archive. Yeah. Um, he loves Jim Beheim. That's his favorite coach. So, oh, here we go. You got it. Syracuse basketball, the nine most. Oh, all right. I got you if you're going to talk about Don McNabb as a basketball player, but I don't think anybody was. Let's be honest. Don McNabb was on the Syracuse basketball team because we knew that so we would get him on our football team. Right, exactly. And we stayed on the team for one year tops, right? Maybe two. He was on two, but he redshirted his freshman year. Okay. But after, I think after the Final Four run, I think they told him, uh, I don't know if it was the third year where they told him, after the third year or after the second year, whatever, at one point they told him, if you want to be serious about football, you got to quit playing basketball. Right. You know? I mean, Fab Mello, okay, I'm not going to disagree with that because Fab Mello just never came through. Preston Shumpert, come on, you're kind of picking on the guy. Right. Preston Shumper wasn't wasn't a big recruit that ended up being a decent player. You know? I don't really think that's fair. I, I have good I have good memories of Preston Shumper. I thought Terrence that- Roberts, I won't argue with you there. Terrence Roberts was a lot of hype with very you know, those teams were, were awful. You know? Yep. Terrence Roberts, Daryl Watkins, Orangeman. Yep. Not a big fan of I, I'm not gonna hit him too hard on that. 
Wes Johnson, I think, is kind of ridiculous. I he think, came one year, and we had a really good season. And yeah, if not for Arenzi and Owaku, we might have made it to the Final Four. Yep. If not for his entry, not Arenzi and Owaku being our problem. You know, we had a great team that year. Yep. You know, um, let's see. What else? What else? What else? He's got Dante Green. Dante, okay, not going to fight with him too much there. Dante Green was a chump. That's a top, Here's the top five. So so Dante Green, number five. Uh, Billy Edlin, number four. Billy Edlin wasn't overrated. Billy Edlin's problem is, I would, you know, that's the problem. Just because he didn't fulfill his talent wasn't because he was overrated. It was because he kept fucking up. Right, he couldn't stay on the court. Yes, that has nothing to do. When he was on the court, he was damn good. You remember the year we won the title? Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't have won that title without Billy Edelin. Yeah, no doubt. You know? No doubt. I mean, the guy was good. He knew how to get in the lane. He knew how to – he was a good guard. I have no – you know, Billy Eden's not over overrated. Billy Eden was an Edelin was a knucklehead. That's Billy Edelin's problem. Uh, speaking uh, of knucklehead, Williams. Yep. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That guy kind of liked his game way more than everybody else did. He was kind of a knucklehead. Oh well, here he goes. Williams was involved in a number of bar fights. Barely did his schoolwork and was caught in a riff with teammate Preston Shumpert and his girlfriend. Well, I don't know how much you can knock on him for barely doing his schoolwork. Uh, I I tend to think most college athletes aren't really strong at doing their schoolwork. <laughs> they had no less than thirty-four guys on the Florida State football team had this de- had the same degree. Interdisciplinary social science. Now, what's that even mean? I'm sure it's just fancy sociology. Okay, you know, but. Not that that makes them unique, because I'm sure if you would have run through the Auburn, uh, you know, the majors on Auburn or the majors on any Division One college football team, say for a couple of teams, you would probably see uh, a similar uh, a similar major that ran throughout, you know, and then you would know that's probably the biggest bullshit major on campus. Uh, and I can't hate on sociology majors because Jody Skolnick uh, was a sociology major. Yeah, well, of course she was. She was just a screw-off jock. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, that's the only people in those classes, right? Well, she was a sweater, man. I'll tell you that. Walking around in her um her <laughs> walking around her team-issued uh sweatsuits and shit in class. <laughs> Remember that? That's how you always tell the athletes. They were always in uh team-issued gear. Right. <laughs> They're always in like the football players are always in those gray sweatpants, you know, with their numbers on them and shit. <laughs> oh, Paul Harris. Uh, I'll have to agree with Paul Harris. Paul Harris was a big disappointment because he was equal parts knucklehead yes. and didn't live up to his talent. The problem was he was a tweener. Yep. You know, six five, he just had a weird body you know like he wasn't he wasn't any one thing you know guy with his ability is great in in high school because there's not too many people bigger than that anyway but he just 
don't know. They should have uh, put him on the football team. Probably he would have been a great tight end. He would have. Been, I was just gonna say he would have either been an above-average college football tight end or an All-American volleyball player. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know where could he have gone for that. Maybe Penn State or something. Do they oh. still have a men's volleyball team there? At West, maybe. Yeah, I know Penn State used to have a men's team, but I think there's only like. 30-something teams play in volleyball now. Men's volleyball. Um, hmm. And Jason Hart? I don't know if it's without question that he's the most overrated Syracuse basketball player. Well, in his opinion, okay. Without question. All right. I can't sit there and fight his opinion. But questionable opinion it, it is. Yes. Yes. Jason Hart. He was involved with one of the with a little kerfuffle earlier this year, because I think he's on the USC coaching staff now. Okay. I think it's Jason Hart. And Tony Bland, I think, is on the staff, too. You remember Tony Bland, who I think transferred from Syracuse to San Diego State, like, in his last year. Yeah, 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 yeah. They had a fight between, I guess, Tim Floyd, UTEP, and USC were in the same tournament somewhere, maybe down the Caribbean or in Cancun or something. Um... And Tim Floyd, you know, used to be the coach at USC. Yeah. I think he was peed off at at Enfield, the guy that was coach of Florida Gulf Coast last year when they made that run. Yes. Now the USC coach apparently has some hard feelings because they think that they came and um, stole a recruit from him who had who had signed to play at UTEP and then backed out and now is at USC. And I think Jason Hart might have been – they got in a fight. Tim Floyd and the guy Enfield. It's going to be. What are you watching? <laughs> Osage County. Sorry about that. I was trying to. Uh, I was trying to look up that story that you were talking about. But yeah, here it is on ESPN. Members of two Division One coaching staffs reportedly clashed during a reception for the Battle for Atlantis tournament at Paradise Island in the Bahamas on Wednesday. According to multiple tweets by Sports Illustrated and CBS reporter Seth Davis, who was in the Bahamas, Southern California's Andy Enfield, UTEP's Tim Floyd, and staffers for both teams were involved in an altercation during the event. Ugly incident at reception for Battle for Atlantis. Andy Enfield and Tim Floyd got in a heated argument. USC and UTEP assistants had to be separate, Davis tweeted. He also said USC assistants Tony Bland and Jason Hart and UTEP assistant Bob Cantu were involved. Uh, I don't need to go any further. I had come up with an idea um, to sell gourmet jellies at farmer's markets, but Anne shot that down because I didn't necessarily make the jelly myself. Well, you guys got to buy the jelly? I was going to buy the jelly, repackage it, and sell it. Uh, it's gourmet jelly <laughs> at the farmer's market, and she thought that that you was. You're basically going to perpetrate a fraud on <laughs> She pointed out the whole purpose of a farmer's market was A, uh, to deliver fresh local goods uh, to consumers, and, and B, um, to sell your own wares. Yeah. Hence, you're a farmer. Oh, this is from Old Man Smucker's Farm. <laughs> 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 it's funny how easy it is to scam people on that. Right. All you need is like a folding table and uh, a couple of those peach baskets, and people will buy anything from you. Yep. Just repackage the stuff in those mason jars or something. 
and that's how I came up with the idea. Ange's um, has a couple ants who every holiday um, provide some type of home home cooked good. Um, you know, whether it's peanut brittle or fudge or um, jellies, happen to be big one year. So we have a bunch of you know little tiny jelly jars. Yeah. And I thought that, uh, listen, it wouldn't take much to repackage them, sell each one for a couple of dollars markup, and we're golden. I was actually given a jar of orange jelly last week because there was a, uh, my buddy Jacob, who I work with at his house, he's got a orange tree in the backyard, and, you know, there was a freeze, like, uh, weather is dropping down to like 20 degrees here, so out of fear of all the oranges dying, they plucked them all off the tree and they had so many damn oranges. You know, you start making jelly at a certain point. Oh, no way. Yeah. So my mom's a big on... my mom's a big orange jelly fan. Yeah, I've even tried it yet just cuz it kind of seems orange jelly is weird to me. Well, um how much did you get? What, of the orange jelly? Yeah. I mean, just like a little mason jar, like probably in, you know, one of those 8-ounce jars. Yeah, all right. I was gonna say. Oh, you, you want me to ship you up some more shell? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. I if can you probably get some for you if you really want it. Uh, well, if you can get me about twenty-four ounces, then I could divvy that up into the eight-ounce mason jars that I have, and then bring that to the <laughs> farmers market. <laughs> you know what? I'll talk to him tomorrow and see if they got some spare orange jelly for you. I'll split the profits with him. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's gonna. He's moving out of that house, but. I don't think it's going to be worth his while to be starting a uh, a mass orange jelly shipment business. You know. Wait, is the property up for sale? Because I might have found I might have found my new business. <laughs> 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 yeah, his house in a suburban neighborhood happens to have an orange tree in the back. <laughs> That's going to be the source of your orange jelly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could co-op it with Mike Peters because in the uh, in his backyard he's got a peach tree, and he was telling me um, this summer that th- the peaches grow so fast that they just rot on the tree. That he yeah, well, that was his problem. He had so many oranges; it's like it's impossible to keep up with it. Yeah. So I mean, like, how many damn peaches can you eat a day? Exactly. So I'm thinking if I if I can import that from from Peter's, we form a co-op. Now should we sell them peach cobbler? This is brilliant. Because I can also sell that at the farmers market. Yeah. Um when we were when I was in Europe, what was that? 2007 now, when I was over there studying with the law school, we were in Salzburg and they had a guy who had studied over here who is from there, this guy, Lorenz, Lorenz Wolf. And um, he's like, he's like, hey, guys, when you, it, he told me, and like it was probably like five or six others, he's like, when y'all come to Salzburg, you can just stay at my family's house. So we get there, we're like, we're going to stay at his family's house, not, you know, thinking just a regular house. But we get there, and it is like this estate, you know. Now, where and were you? Was- Latvia? No, no, Austria, Salzburg, like where Sound of Music was filmed. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, Salzburg, like, you know, the hills are alive. Yes. So we go there, and it's this compound. It even had its own chapel, you know, because Austrians are very Catholic. 
Okay. Because years ago, when like I think it might have been his grandmother when she was sick, you know, she couldn't go to church in town anymore, so they just built a chapel on the grounds for. Her. Uh, because apparently they were related. Apparently, this family was related to the uh, to the Habsburgs. I heard. Okay. Uh, which you might know as being the family that ruled Austria and the Austro-Hungarian Empire until uh, the end of World War One. They're one of my uh, favorite Austria-Hungarian families. Yes, uh, like Franz Ferdinand and all that. That those people, uh, Marie Antoinette. She was a Habsburg, I believe. Uh, and and also, I guess when the during World War Two, the Americans set up camp at their house. You know, when they were, you know, gone through, you know, taking back uh, Austria and Germany from the from the Germans from the Nazis. But they had all these old different fruit trees on the grounds, and that's that's what what we ate the uh, two or three days we were there. Every morning you get up and you'd have a different type of jelly. You'd have like, you know. Probably ten different varieties of jellies you could choose from, because from the bounty of of their of their uh, property, you know, they had all different types of berries. It was it was definitely that was probably the most impressive part of that experience to me was the was the variety of jellies offered. <laughs> I mean, the history was cool and the view was awesome, but the jellies you were couldn't great. beat the jellies. Yeah, it was crazy because they just had like they had groves of trees, you know, and it's like, oh, my mother makes all these jellies, you know, <laughs> like it was just nothing for them. It's like, what kind of jelly you want? Oh, you want this berry? We got uh, uh, we got lingonberry. Oh, we got pear jelly stuff that I would never even, like. I never have any desire to actually eat a pear, but present me with Austrian homemade pear jelly and I'm eating it. <laughs> So that was pretty. How so can you that's beat that? My encounter with jelly. That listen, that beats my encounter with jelly. Angie's well, aunt. Angie's aunt is certainly not a Habsburg. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman, but uh, she can't compete with that with the Habsburgs. Yeah, I guess I ate the royal jelly. <laughs> um, you know, maybe maybe we can get him to start shipping the jelly from Austria over to New Jersey to sell at the farmers market. I could get a premium for that. Yeah, yeah. You know, royal jelly. Same jelly eaten by General Patton in World War II. <laughs> <laughs> All right, get on that for me, will you? I'm getting, yeah, I'm getting bored that. not having a job. Yeah. Ludwig von Beethoven might have eaten that jelly at one time. Mozart might have eaten that jelly. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, uh, are you still in touch with that guy? I'm Facebook friends with him. I mean, I don't know if we're going to be able to set up this jelly uh, market or anything. But. <laughs> no, no, no. The reason I ask is because um, we are, for some reason, pretty big in Germany. Two sorry excuses. Um, top three uh countries are the united states el salvador and germany oh well it's good to hear fredo's listening well, fredo's listening which is great because i thought we might have alienated fredo um in one of our earlier episodes and i i felt really bad for a while yeah um, well that's why i kept qualifying everything with he's a really good guy 
But I, I think it was like one of those conversations that if he was there in person, it 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 would have flowed the same way. Yeah. But it just seems it just seems a little more douchebaggery. Uh, it's got a higher level of douchebaggery when you're doing it, you know, kind of behind his back in front of his yeah. face on the internet. But well, um, let's hold the thought on Fredo for a second. But uh, let's just keep in mind Austrians don't like to be confused with Germans. Well, so I doubt Lorenz is listening to us if we're popular in Germany. Well, that that was my mistake because I had um, originally looked at regions, um, and I had thought that perhaps that was the greater Germanic region uh, that we were big in, but um, it is in fact the country itself. Who do you know in Germany? I have no idea, man. I have no idea. Huh. Well, I can't think of anybody I know in Germany. Let's see. When when did you travel over there in in Europe? That was 2007, 2008. Yeah, I traveled roughly the same time. That's only like six or seven years ago, right? Yeah. So it's not like we have any illegitimate spawn who would be listening. Because it's six or seven. What six or seven-year-old German illegitimate... Um, half German, half American tourist traveler kid is going to be listening to our podcast. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting theory anyway. They have some illegitimate kid who's figuring out who his daddy is by a random podcast. A <laughs> <laughs> um, couple other things to note on uh, while we're breaking down our demographics. Mein Vater! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, with the pit game behind us and the Miami Wake Forest games ahead of us, but not the focus, uh, I guess let's get back to um, the Dukies. So two, there's two storylines to this game. It's obviously uh, what's going to happen inside the Dome, and um, there's also the storyline of what's been going on outside the Dome in preparation for this game, as you know, going back as long as, as September and October um, when this game sold out. Uh, and guaranteed that we would set uh, yet another uh, attendance record. So what do you want to cover first? The the X's and O's of uh, of a, a budding ACC rivalry, or do you want to talk about the shenanigans and tomfoolery that are going on outside of the Dome? Um, well, with we our can st- talk about the because, – because that world has been rocked over the past couple of days due to the weather. The Bayheimberg camp. Yeah, so might as well touch on that. This has caught my attention for a number of reasons, and one of those, uh, one of the schools that I has I was looking at when I was um, in high school uh, was Duke, and I kind of went down, and took the tour of those you know Tobacco Road schools, and and really got a sense of you know what they were all about, and I was super impressed with. Not only the campus, not only the academics, but you know the student body in particular, and and just people buy in to being a Duke Blue Devil, both you know athletically and academically. It's it's just that kind of school, and I got to see um, you know the I got to see the Dean Dome, which was outstanding. I got to see uh, Cameron Indoor Stadium, um, Shashevskyville, the whole deal, yep. and. It just made an impression on me, and it, it stuck. And I have vivid memories of of those images. Syracuse isn't that type of school. Yeah, 
we just don't have one. We don't have the climate to, you know, to kind of perpetuate those types of, you know, collegiate athletic, you know, myths and, and, um, institutions such as Shashevskyville. But we're also, a we're also in, in a place where, you know, you're isolated and there's nothing going on but Syracuse athletics. So it doesn't take a lot to be part of the scene if and when you want to be part of the scene. I I don't think I went to I, I, I don't think I went to a basketball game until until I was a senior. Oh really? But once I went, well then I was in. And I was ingratiated and there was plenty of room for me. Physically, well, I mean that's the other that's the other side of. Sorry, let me just interject real quick. The other side of it is we have plenty of supply. Exactly, to satisfy the demand. Absolutely, you know? and I think that goes into kind of what you know my experience was when I was ready to jump in. I was I had the opportunity, and it was provided for me, and I didn't have to wait for it. There was a seat waiting with my name on it, yeah. and I think that. There can be some. There's something to be said for that because we will always have the largest crowd in, you know, a, a given season for a given game. We'll always open up the other side of the dome for a marquee matchup. We will always talk about putting the court at center uh, at center, at midfield, you know, for a game like this. Now, will that happen? Probably not. Well, does it make sense to do it? Probably not. But there's always that buzz. There's always that talk. And you you go back to, you know, the Georgetown days. You go back to the UConn days. And now you're talking about bringing in a team like Duke. Those – this isn't the best team that's ever come into the Carrier Dome. This isn't the – this isn't, you know, a matchup for the ages. Every year we have something along these lines, and if you haven't been part of the you know the program or you haven't been part of the community up until that point, that's okay because there's room for you. So this yeah. idea of Beheimberg, um, really just kind of really just was kind of amusing. Uh, be- Is this the first time you heard of it um, this season or or this week? Ever. Because they've done it, it's happened, and I think it's come up in the last, um, I think it's only been created in the last two years, because I've seen about it, and the first time I ever saw about it, it blew me away, because I was like, why do we even need that? There's no, we don't play in a small gym, any student that wants a ticket can get a ticket. Right. You know? Right. And, you know, kind of their approach to this uh, is a little humorous. Now, I guess Ben Glidden uh, is the president yeah, of Otto's Army. Well, I'm looking at this Bayheimberg, the world's greatest camp out, um, nationoforange.com. You know, talking about the genesis of Bayheimberg. But go on about this Ben Glidden guy. So I love that there had been a couple days of debate on, you know, whether or not uh, it would count if they moved inside the dome to continue yeah. camping out. Um, you know, what constituted keeping your place in line? You know, what were the issues that were associated with, um, you know, with being involved in this camp out? And uh, there's a couple great quotes here. Um, so 
Ben Glidden says the the temperatures have been low, but not as low as they're going to get. But then it hit me midday that this isn't safe. <laughs> oh, this is about how they called them off, and they're not they're not doing overnight camping. But they're anymore. not doing overnight camping. So so because they said people can get frostbite and die. It's going to be minus nine degrees. So he said, um, uh, "What's where's the?" So earlier in the day, he said he believed. Uh, the campers were equipped to, equipped to handle the cold, and he hoped to maintain the round-the-clock presence. He said he talked about sending a message of support to Syracuse players and showing Duke fans who the toughest fan base is. <laughs> but after a round of interviews earlier in the day, he began to do some research on hypothermia. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. He called the Syracuse administrator and talked about the importance of safety. By the time Glidden made his decision, he said representatives of the eight groups camping out were in agreement. There's only eight groups of students camping out. Oh, man. Now, I don't know what the limits are in terms of, you know, how many students can be per tent in order to secure, you know, their place in line. But uh, let's just say it's four. Well, I mean, is it eight groups in terms of eight groups or like or is it eight groups in terms of eight different factions? I, I got to assume it's eight groups of camps, of campsites. So eight tents. Yeah. I'm, I'm picturing eight tents all representing X number of students. So, I mean, if you're going to let – let's say, you know, let's say Sigma Chi has a tent – yeah. Can they be holding a place for all 32 brothers? No, it's got to yeah. – It's got. I think you got to be able to limit it to the number of, of students in that particular tent. So, you know, if it's a group of four, that's fine. One kid can hold, you know, the place. As long as there's one kid in there at all times, he's holding the place for all four. But, I mean, to – Well, the question is, did they change the way they do the seats that they created this need for this thing? Well, I guess the way the student section works now is it is a first-come, first-serve. All right, because it wasn't that way when we were there. No, you had a ticket. I remember when I was there getting my freshman tickets, and we kind of had shittier seats. But by the time you became a senior, if you kept getting the season tickets, you were center court. Right. You know? Because I remember my RA was a senior. He's like, oh, no, when you're a senior, you'll get the real good seats. You know, like you, you had a seat, you know, you had an assigned seat when you bought a season ticket. Um, I wasn't just like general admission student section. So Otto's Army, I guess, started in 2006. And then in 2010, it, it crafted a point system that allowed you to get benefits from from supporting the other programs. Okay, like what? Like on the women's games? Yeah, non-revenue games, sports, stuff, stuff like, like that. that. Exactly. Okay. Um, well, that's cool. I mean, anything that makes, um, anything that engenders more of a rah-rah uh, collegiate experience, I think, is better for uh, Syracuse. Uh, at- because in my experience, they have so many people at that school that just could give a damn. No, absolutely, and I agree, and I think you know that type of spirit is great. But um, I, I think there's a time and a place. I think there you got to kind of know your role, and you got to know you got to know your school. I, I we're not a camp outside the dome kind of place. 
Yeah. I I remember a couple of years ago, I think they were camping out in the dome, you know, like in the uh, concourse or something. Here's here are on the the pantheon of things that are pretty embarrassing. One would be actually making it home with a chick and passing out before you hook up with her. Yeah. Well, who hasn't done that? <laughs> Two would be camping out in support of your athletic program, but you get to do so inside the confines of a domed arena. Yeah. And number one would be camping out to support your athletic program, but having it canceled because it's too cold out. You might as well, well you might as well not do it. It's Syracuse. It's minus no, it's minus nine more than it's not minus nine during the months of January and February. Yeah. I that's the problem. It's a hell of a lot easier to go camping out in North Carolina than it is in Syracuse, New York. You know what you do? You have you you have an all nighter. You have you know what's akin to the old fifties dance contests. You yeah. want to show your support? Well, you open up, um, you open up Manly Fieldhouse. Or Manly Fieldhouse is a football facility now. Yeah. Well, do they? Are you? It's got it has turf in it. But do you? What I mean is, do are students allowed in it? I don't know. But where are you going to open Manly Fieldhouse? You it's th- nowhere near the dome. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> Listen, <laughs> we let me finish. <laughs> what, are, why don't you go camp with Glidden? You go get your tent and you go go outside with the other eight idiots and you show Duke fans how tough you are. I don't know why you want to sit here and crap on all the crap on the kids that are making uh, Syracuse basketball more more exciting than you ever did. So you throw a party inside Manly Fieldhouse. Okay. All right. Like an all nighter. Like an all nighter. And the last men or women standing are akin to the people who are camping outside. So as you leave Manly Fieldhouse or as you fall asleep or as you pass out or whatever it is, you then get a ticket and you get the worst ticket. First guy who leaves gets the worst ticket. Last guy who leaves gets the best ticket in the house. I think that's more apropos, and that's more in line of what the Syracuse University experience is as opposed to camping outside of the Dome for two weeks. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand why you need to camp outside the Dome for two weeks. Uh, I mean, if it really is only eight groups of tents, which is like, Got to be no more than like 30-something people. And to be honest, it's embarrassing. One, that there's only eight groups. And two, that you have to cancel it. Now, I understand. But Bayheim did deliver them donuts or something the other day, so that's kind of cool. Of course he, of course, because he's he's the best. Yeah. (laughs) You know? You go camp out there for donuts for Bayheim. I would. I would, but I'm not camping outside for tickets. I'm looking at the rules of how this works. Oh, all right. List. All right, break it down. This is on the this is on carrierdome.com under their Otto's Army um, rules and regulations. Okay, go ahead. The student entry process, you know, student enter the carrier dome via gate E, present your valid SI SUID card. All right, let's see. All right. 
Um, SU students who purchase individual game tickets may be permitted to line up at Gady behind the student season. Ticket holders begin 30 minutes before tip-off. All right, the list, definition purpose. The list is a handwritten list of all students in line prior to the gate opening time of a Syracuse University men's basketball game. Gate E is the assigned gate for student entry games. The list is the order in which students select their seats. The list is used to ensure safe, fair, and organized entry for students. Students must be student season ticket holders to participate. So just random schmoes can't go get on the list. You need to get the season tickets. Students are not required to participate in the system. However, students on the list, it, it's capitalized every time, will choose seats <laughs> before those not on the list. This system will only apply to as many students as fill the floor seat and blue seat non-bleacher area of the student section. Basic process. The first group, up to four students. So by definition, that could have been no more than 32 students, those eight groups camping. Okay. The first group to arrive at Gady begins the list. These students are the list facilitators. So that's why those kids are trying to get there on time. They want to be the very first ones. So it might be more than eight. Uh, there might be more than eight groups camping out as you get a few days ahead of closer to the Duke game. The list facilitators may defer any or all responsibilities to the events officer of Otto's Army. <laughs> all right. It's getting really arcane now. As students arrive, they're responsible for finding the list and adding their group to the list. <laughs> <laughs> Before the gates open, each group will receive an Otto's Army numbered card that corresponds with its group number. When the Carrier Dome staff begins its entry procedure, students will line up in the order they arrived, as defined by the list. Otto's Army board members will organize this task. Upon entry, students will make their way to the student section. There will be no running. (laughs) (laughs) Only students who are there at the opening of the gates and taking of seats get the seats. There will be no saving of seats, so you need to be there. Otto's Army board members are responsible for ensuring that students pick their seats in the order defined by the list. Upon taking their seats, groups will return to their official Otto's Army numbered card to an Otto's Army board member. So there you go. That's how it works. The following rules apply to every game. Abuses or violations of these rules shall be reported to Otto's Army board members. Maximum group size, four. All students must be student section season ticket holders to sit in the floor seats and participate in the list process. Group notifi- modifications. Groups may subtract members from their groups at any time. Groups may not add members once another group succeeds them. Groups may exchange members at any time before the gates open. So I guess you can trade people. <laughs> yeah. Like if I like if you had Mike Reardon in your group, you'd be looking to get rid of him or something. I would trade. I would trade Mike Reardon for uh, Little Teresa and Ann Bomarito. All right, there you have it. Episode twelve: Two Sorry Excuses in the Books, the TSEC Primer. Hope you enjoyed it. I uh, hope you download future episodes. Hope you subscribe on iTunes or listen on Stitcher. Even if you don't listen, just subscribe and download it. Makes my mom proud. Uh, either way, thanks for taking the time. With apologies to Girk's brother, we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>